Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. As president of Bordeaux Négociants CVBG, Mathieu Chadronnier is among the most important figures in the wine world. As well as making a pure Merlot with his wife Anne-Laurence at Chateau Marceau in the Côte de France, he also trades with 66 different countries. Listen to his chat about why great wine is defined by quality, not geography, the changing Bordeaux trade, why he's happiest walking in the Alps with his camera. Hi, Mathieu. How are you? I am very good. How are you? I'm extremely well, thank you. It's lovely to hear your voice. And you're in Bordeaux, I think, aren't you? I am, absolutely. I'm home. And I hope you've had too good a lunch because we're doing this on a Sunday afternoon. No, the, the the good lunch was yesterday. Today was okay. <laughs> okay, I'm pleased to hear it. I'm the same. I've been very sober today, very abstemious, but we'll so taste some wines later when we do the uh, the Instagram live. Lots of stuff to talk to you about. You know, you're one of the leading fine wine merchants in the world. You've got an enormous uh, um, experience working with those wines, and particularly with Bordeaux, but also with the wines from elsewhere. But I want to begin by just asking you a little bit about your background, because I know your parents very well. I think the first time I met you was with your parents. Um, you were born into wine, really. I mean, your dad was a famous Bordeaux negociant. He was head of Vinexpo. Um, he worked for the same company as you do now. Uh, it was in slightly different form. Uh, was there ever a possibility you'd do anything else? Did you think, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a footballer or, a, I don't know, a... Well, I'm an astronaut because I would have loved to be an astronaut. Uh, and believe it or not, uh, well, going to the moon would be a dream. Uh, but that that will remain an unfulfilled one. Um, uh, but no, uh, funny enough, it never really was obvious that I would go into wine. Mm. Uh, it's uh, wine happened to me. Uh, it, however bizarre this may sound, uh, but I, I was really not pursuing going into wine. Um, we had a family vineyard at Chateau Marceau, which we may discuss later since 1994. And uh, when, once we got that, I did fall in love with vine. And I understand vine, uh, I understood vine and the special bond you can create with land uh, much before I began to understand wine. Mm. Um, and yes, my father had this very prominent position in the border wine trade, but that never meant to me that mm. I would have or that I would wish to follow in the footsteps. And uh, my first um, attractions were towards new technologies. We in the late 90s, early 2000s, just right before the dot-com bubble burst. And I... Uh, that that's where I wanted to go, and and the inflection point is that the first job I found was in a company selling wine over the internet, uh, and the fact that it was selling wine was kind of my key to enter uh, the internet world. Yeah. Um, no escape. <laughs> once I got there, really wine caught up with me. And and when I chose to leave that company, then it was extremely clear to me that wine is what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you must have been brought up. I mean, I've had lots of good bottles at your parents' table. You were brought up kind of drinking and tasting and talking about good wine, weren't you? Yes. Uh, wine always I mean, was part of 
meals. Uh, and and yes, I grew up in the company of of wine people at home, of fine bottles, and I I I, I was probably more discerning um, about the nuances of those labels and bottles than most people my age. Uh, that did yeah. not make me a good taster. Uh, again, mm. uh, recognizing labels is one thing, but recognizing wine is another one. And, and that, that really came later. But e yes, I grew up in, in the company of, of fine wine. I mean, you know, you, you studied international business school in Bordeaux and Rotterdam. You obviously bilingual, probably trilingual. Are you? I'm sure you speak Dutch as well, but probably Chinese. But um, did you ever think about doing a winemaking degree once you kind of fall in love with Marceau a bit, you said? Or did you always think, OK, I'm going to do I'm going to do business, going to be the business side? No, a, a winemaking degree never was part of the equation because, again, I, I initially wanted to work in technology. So winemaking degree had nothing to do with there. And um, and and then later, I I was attracted by the business side of, of wine. Yeah. Um, so, and, and in the end, I did something actually much better than studying winemaking. I married a winemaker. <laughs> and a very beautiful and charming yeah, one as well, which is a smart move in all sorts of ways. <laughs> I mean... Some people listening to this podcast won't know the way that Bordeaux works, how it functions as a, as a business, really. Can you just briefly explain the respective roles of the Chateau, the Courtier and the Négociant? Because there's also a crossover between them at some points, isn't there? <clears throat> well, the Chateau is probably the easiest. They make wine mm. and very good wines. Um, and so the, the role of the Chateau, uh, and we're, uh, we're talking for the fine wine uh, business here. The role of the shadow is to make the best wine possible and to actively promote it. Um, the courtier is there to facilitate uh, the functioning of business between chateaux and négociants. And, and the role of the négociant is is really to be um, well to, to buy the wine from the chateau uh, and to distribute it in in every possible geographies, but with a very fine-tuned uh, and curated approach to distribution. It's not about selling wine everywhere. It's it's really a, 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 about being the bridge um, between cons well, distributors in, in different parts of the world and, and, and the chateaus. And some chateaus sell direct, don't they? Not many, but a few of the top ones. Uh, not really. Uh, yeah. I mean, only in France. But no, yeah, it's funny. There's always this debate about Latour. Latour doesn't sell direct. They chose to not sell en primeur. And the fact that they chose to not sell en primeur has been widely understood as they're choosing to sell direct, but they're, they're, they're not. Uh, they, but, but they stopped selling en primeur, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's also a lot of talk about something called La Place de Bordeaux in fine wine circles. I mean, is it a physical place? And just tell us how it operates briefly. Yes. First, it is not a physical place. You, you no, don't, don't try and find it when you come to Bordeaux it. because you will, <laughs> you, you, you will end up wasting a lot of time. No, it, it's just the name that has been given to this, um, well, trio of chateaus and courtiers and, 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 and négociants. So you, you aggregate all the négociants and all the courtiers and all the chateaus and you call it La Place de Bordeaux. It's just just the name of it. 
Yeah. I mean, did the courtiers still have a role to play? I mean, could, presumably you could just go direct to the Chateau as a negociant, couldn't you? Do you need them as a kind of go-between, as an entremetteur, if you like? Yes, they ease a lot of things. Um, it, it's it, uh, Part of it is a little bit technical, but uh, I, I could not buy as much wine as I do if there yeah. was no courtier. Because uh, you wouldn't have time? Yes, absolutely. Uh, time, but, yeah. but it's also about relationships. Um, so the, 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 the courtiers speak to the chateaus much more often than I do because yeah. all of my time is not dedicated to being with the chateaus. But there's, of course, a, a variety of other things. And, and yes, the courtiers uh, are, have a more intimate uh, relationship with both the negociants and the chateaus. And, yeah. um, and so they, they know everything that is happening. Uh, so they have a great depth of uh, information, a very granular understanding of what is happening. Um, and, and, and pretty simply, they, yeah, they, they ease everything. They, they make our life easier. And would they say to you, for example, hey, Mathieu, you know, Grand Pilacos have made an amazing wine this year. You know, you've got to get a bigger allocation as you can as possible. And if you trust them, would you follow their advice? Um, these conversations happen all the time uh, between courtiers and négociants, between négociants and their customers. Um, and, and when those conversations happen, it's just an extra incentive to go to Grand Pilacos and check the wine myself. For example, and, and, yeah. and start the yeah. conversation. So, so yeah. yes, and in in, in that way, um, it is a contribution to the reputation of wines and vintages. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I do want to ask you what makes a good negotiant. I mean, you you obviously are a very good negotiant, and you know what makes a good one, and, and you're not a bad one. But what makes a bad one? Because you must look at people sometimes and think, oh, I really wouldn't do that. Um, well. It's a, it's a more difficult question than it would seem, but but it's 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 a very uh, and, and that's not surprising coming from you. Uh, but, but it's it's a very interesting question. I, I would say that um, there's probably four elements that would make uh, a good negotiant. Obviously, there's uh, the distribution network um, and inventory. Well, that's actually two, uh, but. To be a good negotiant, you need to have ramifications in every market. Um, and, and that is even more true today than it was 10 or 15 years ago. If, if you want to understand the market, you have to be active in every geography. Mm. Um, and, and well, the investment in inventory is, of course, very central. You need to have at any point in time what you're clients are looking for readily available and and that is a very substantial investment so maybe you would put it as to be a good negotiant you need to be to have the resources to finance a large inventory but yes so distribution network and inventory i think a team the quality of the team is central um the, the fine wine business is sometimes very much about small companies uh where there's one or two but Usually one very visible face, uh, but the quality of the team is what makes the whole difference. And, yeah. and, and the culture of the team and the passion of the team is, is absolutely central to, to, to our success and to being, uh, or at least striving to be a good negociant. Uh, then uh, having a long-term vision, this is a long-term business and, and you cannot be in this business 
chasing just shortened games. Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is long term, and you have to you have to have this long term mindedness, I think, uh, to be um, a good negotiator. And, and the last thing I would say is having a true understanding. Uh, or a sincere understanding of what makes fine wine so special mm. because fine wine is an absolutely unique product and and i think everyone in the business has the duty of protecting and promoting what makes it so special mm. yeah. so yeah, trying to uh, and and a bad one doesn't do any of those things, really, we could say, couldn't we? Or does them less well? Yeah? Yes, and would be maybe more focused on um, on shifting merchandise at a low price fast. and Quick sales. Uh, uh, yes, really. and, yeah. and, and that does yeah. not contribute to, to the overall industry. Mm. I mean, I just wonder, to what extent can you at CBBG, which is your, the company you're president of, um, can you affect the market? Can you say to people, I've, I've made this amazing discovery or there's a new winemaker at, at such a place or a new generation has taken over? Or is it mainly just a job of selling the wines that people want to buy from you? It would be very naive uh, for any uh, merchant in our position to, or, or arrogant to say, whatever we say, people will follow. Mm. Uh, because we all have our own opinions. Uh, so uh, how do we affect the market? I think maybe it probably begins with offering the conditions for our clients to forge their own opinion. And we do that mm. organizing a tasting that you know uh, uh, in Bordeaux. That, that's one example. Mm. But then, again, we're a team, uh, a growing team, and, and we all have our inclinations and preferences and we share those and and while we do we well we contribute to shifting the attention of our clients in certain directions Mm. and but of course um we're there to get our clients what they want but but there is so much conversation that um these conversations uh, contribute to um well forging the reputations of wines and vintages yeah i mean you, you know you've been with the company for 21 years i can't believe it because you're still seeing so young to me um but you know you've been president since 2019 how has your role changed as president i mean is it more of an ambassadorial role or are you still involved in the day-to-day no um well, before being president, I had been general manager uh, for, for 15 years. Uh, the role really evolved as the business evolved. Um, a, a, as you know, 20 odd years ago, this business was uh, a business, uh, a kind of a, the best one-stop shop in Bordeaux for anyone looking for wines of Bordeaux, fine wine, uh, branded wines, petit chateaus, etc. And And as the market evolved over the past 20 years, it was clear to us that we needed to rethink how we operate uh, because the needs for fine wines are not the same as the, the needs when you have your own chateaus, which Dort has, or with other uh, branches of the business like Crestman. So we started segmenting the teams hmm. uh, up until uh, the point when we chose to split one business into three different businesses. And and this is when the title changed, but the role is unchanged. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how much of what you do is centered on 
En Primeur. I mean, for people listening who don't know what En Primeur is, it's a chance to taste the new vintage when the wine is very young. As futures, they're still obviously in, in barrel. Um, just would it be fair to say it's not as important as it once was En Primeur to Bordeaux? Does it still have a future, do you think? Futures always have a future. <laughs> um, en Primeur, no, En Primeur remains very central to, to, to business in Bordeaux. It is correct to say... Uh, that it is not as dominant as it once was. And I think it's a good thing because it means that our business is more balanced than it mm. used to be. Uh, and there's two reasons to that. Some markets are still not so much into buying en primeur, but they have been growing market, which we have nurtured with available wines, meaning that the share of our business that is not en primeur has increased. And the other yeah. one, but I'm Knowing you, I'm sure you'll have questions about this. We've developed our business in regions other than Bordeaux, yeah. and those regions do not sell en primeur. So hmm. what en primeur amounts to within our business is has diminished, uh, but it, it is still extremely important and central. And um, um, uh, everything should be challenged and questioned, but I have been hearing that en primeur was dead ever since I started in this business. 21 years ago. <laughs> um, and so en primeur has changed a lot. And again, there's challenges and it's not, I mean, we should be very open and, and nimble because things change and need to adapt. But, but I think that en primeur is still a very good system. But you also sell mature wine in bottle, don't you? I mean, en primeur, basically a consumer is buying or, or somebody is buying the wine before it's bottled. They're, they're saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to, this will, I'll receive this in two or three years' time. Uh, and they may not drink it for another 10 or 20 years sometimes. But you also sell mature wine, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, a big en, bit of your business. Primeur, to, 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 to answer the question that is implicit, en primeur is a third of our business. Okay, fine. Okay, good. I suppose that's what I wanted to ask. Thank you. You got there before I did, really. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's been a fair bit of kind of Bordeaux bashing, as some people call it, over the last 10 to 15 years, particularly with some of the hype that surrounds these vintages of the century, where, you know, you get three vintages of the century in a space of 10 years. Um is Bordeaux aware of that, you know, of, of the charge that it relies on hype and marketing and what we call in English sometimes economy with the truth, so not completely telling the truth? Um, is that something that Bordeaux talks about, do you think? Yes, I mean, Bordeaux bashing has been uh, very, very much talked about in Bordeaux and taken extremely seriously. And it's uh, um, it, it challenged everyone. I'd like to say first that I think that it has faded in the review mirror now because yeah. Bordeaux has changed a lot um on on vintage of a century um <laughs> I, I have to say that i took this extremely seriously when i heard the criticism i took yeah. extremely seriously 10 or 15 years ago when all i was doing was bordeaux and now that yeah. we deal with regions other than bordeaux i have come to realize that i have not yet met a winemaker who was super enthusiastic about the last vintage who wasn't who was not uh, so yeah yeah exactly. wine th th there's so much energy and and soul pouring in the new vintage that of mm. course that you, you you want people to love it then mm. Bordeaux is 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 a little bit special because i don't think that there's any region that is under such intense intense scrutiny True. Uh, between harvest and six months after harvest, yeah. um, and and we're in a world where 
we all want to go fast. We all want to rank. We all want to rate. Mm. Um, and, and the hardest thing to do for a winemaker is to say, mm, this year is really good, but it is not as good as last year. <laughs> Or they'd probably get sacked if they did say that. So, yeah, so, so I, I agree that there, the system pushes the hype. Uh, but, but, but in the same way, I, I don't recall hearing any winemaker saying, this is the vintage of a century. Uh, I think it's just um, a collective, um, exaggerated articulation of, yeah. of the hype. I mean, one of my favourite Bordeaux quotes was when Jean-Guillaume Prats was at Cossette-Tonnel, and I said to him, you know, um, which of the two, because 9 and 10 were both very good vintages, very different vintages, 2009, 2010, and both were considered, you know, maybe not vintage of the century, but certainly very good vintages. And I said to him, which do you prefer? And he said, they are both for sale. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, thought, that's fine. (laughs) You've mentioned this already, but... um, you also represent wines from Italy and Spain, the United States, South Africa, Chile, Argentina, and other French regions, you know, the Rhone and Champagne. Um, how do you find the producers? Do, do they approach you or do you, uh, do you approach them? Um, initially, well, there's been both. Um, in most instances, they approached us. There's been a few instances when we approached them. Um, but, well, as for everything in life, it, it takes two to dance. So, yeah. uh, so it's always encounters. But uh, it's fair to say that the, there's been many more instances of producers approaching us than the other way around. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just wondered, do you think the, the definition of what constitutes a fine wine is changing? It's becoming less, less French-focused? I mean, would that be a fair thing to say? Well, it is you who's saying that uh, the definition of fine wine is France-focused and... and well, I, I think I think traditionally, if you look back thirty years ago, I mean, the idea that I mean, maybe fine wine maybe came from Italy. In, in the, I mean, talking about English wine merchants in particular, maybe a bit of Italy, maybe Spain, if it was Vega Sicilia or something. But I don't think anybody seriously thought that fine wine came from the New World. Maybe Napa, you know, from the sort of mid sixties onwards or seventies onwards. But you know, Argentina and Chile and South Africa, would anybody have said those were fine wines? I don't think so. Well, you, you're the expert. I do. You, you're the one who can tell. Yeah, uh, but 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 to answer your question, no, definitely f- the the mm. the definition of fine wine, mm. at least now, is absolutely cross regional, uh, mm. and 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 fine wine is a category that is not not defined by geography. Mm. Uh, it's defined by quality. It's defined yeah. by identity. It is defined yeah. by story. There is no great wine that doesn't have history. And history mm. may be long, it may be short, but yeah. there is no great wine without a true history to it. Uh, and, and that today is definitely found in, in, in a growing number of places. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, I wonder what you think about climate change. I'm sure you're as worried about it as the rest of us are. But do you think that's changing the perception of, or the notion rather, of vintage variation in classic wine regions? In other words, that really bad vintages have gone, um, pretty much, yeah. Um, are wines more consistent today, and is there a downside to that too? Well, first, I don't think there'll ever be a downside to more quality. Uh, and, and yes, the wines are more consistent. Uh, the very weak vintages 
are yeah, pretty much something of the past. And a sort of 84 or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and one of the reasons to this is, of course, that the weather is, um, is more, maybe more benevolent to the vines. It's, it's not the only reason. Uh, I think the main reason is uh, how much, I mean, classic wine regions, the one I know best is Bordeaux. It's how much we have progressed in terms of vine growing, in terms of winemaking, also in terms of understanding what it takes to make a better wine and what it means to have a better wine. Um, and I think all these ingredients come into the greater consistency that we have now in Bordeaux. I think the, the style of Bordeaux has changed over the last 10 years and, and, and it is part of the progression. But yes, uh, we have more very good vintages, um, uh, be they of the century or not. We have, <laughs> the decade. <laughs> we, we, we do have more very good vintages. And quality continues to progress over time, um, but we still have the nuance, the, the nuances and variations, and yeah, stylistic changes from one vintage to the other. Eighteen is different to nineteen, which is different to twenty. To refer to a very famous and very recent trilogy, uh, and twenty-two is going to be very different yet again. So uh, more very good vintages, but still different from one another. I suppose the downside I was thinking about was was maybe more so in, in lesser terroir, where a grape variety like Merlot, which is obviously quite early ripening, might not be ideally suited to these warmer, particularly very warm vintages like 2022. Um, would that be a downside, do you think? And maybe should Bordeaux be looking at other varieties? Well, you, you're, it's funny you ask me this question because our mm. estate is 100% Merlot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's in a very good terroir, you see. That's the point. No, uh, so... Uh, two things about Merlot. Um, well, it is still the most widely planted grape in Bordeaux. Um, and, but yes, climate change will narrow, I think, the areas where Merlot can flourish. Uh, because Merlot is a very uh, delicate and sensitive grape variety, and it needs to be in the right places. And maybe uh, Mer Merlot will, um, yeah, will be more concentrated especially on clay and limestone areas. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, 2022, which is the textbook, textbook vintage of the climate change that should prove that Merlot is not suited anymore, mm -hmm. is a vintage mm -hmm. when everyone is amazed by the quality of the Merlots uh, yeah. on both the right and the left bank. Yeah. So, so, okay. um, so to, to me, climate change in terms of production is more about rethinking how we approach viticulture uh, uh, rather than uh, radical changes to the grape varieties we use. But yeah, planting Terriga Nacional or Grenache or something. <laughs> no, yeah, so blends have always changed yeah. and we should be open yeah. to experiments. But today the identity of Bordeaux revolves around essentially three grape varieties for reds. Mm. The mix mm. between the three will evolve and it should. Uh, but, but I think there's still a a bright future uh, for each of the three, uh, yeah. as long as in, in the right place. Ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, w I want to ask you about wine as a as a so-called investment vehicle. I mean, I'm always seeing things online saying, hey, you know, invest in wine, that if you'd bought Rumier Bonnemar, you'd have made more money than if you'd bought a Rolex watch or something like that. I mean, it annoys me. I don't know what you think about it. Do you regard it as part of your job to tell people how to make money out of wine? No. 
Well, first, our business is B2B. We do not mm. sell to private clients. Our clients do that. Um, and, and one should be naive about why everything in life should offer relative value. And when it is a product which with such a long lifetime as a bottle of fine wine, mm. that value can only be found if it appreciates over time. Mm. So in a way, speculation uh, uh, has always been part of the wine business. Um, but, but I've always felt that speculation took good care of itself and that our business uh, was not to encourage it. Again, it's yeah. not being naive or blindfolded. It, it is yeah. part of it, but, but it's on the side, uh, and 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 it is not our role to to tell people uh, what they should buy for investment. Uh, yeah. it, it's our role to try and recommend uh, what is interesting in terms of well, rising stars and yeah. and and what's trending uh, but not so much what's speculating and even as a wine consumer uh, I well as you would imagine I do buy quite a bit of wine and I've never purchased a single case for investment and neither have I it, it happened to me occasionally <laughs> yeah. very occasionally to sell one case not because it had fetched a high price but sometimes you go down to your cellar oh, well there's a bit too much and not mm. enough space and and this may not be something I want to drink anymore. And having mm. this ability to manage your seller by, okay, I can, it's okay to buy too much because I can change my mind until I open the bottle of wine, I think it, it is, is very good. Uh, mm. but, but wine as an investment is, is well, it, to me, is very uh, remote from the very notion of fine wine. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm applauding you. <laughs> you can't see me. Well, you can, but you can't. There we go. Everyone can hear me applauding. I agree. Um, You've mentioned your own chateau that's been in the family, Chateau Marceau. Did you say 1994 you bought it? Yes, my parents bought yeah, this. Your parents bought it, yeah, and it's in the Côte de France. Uh, it was once described by Robert Parker, the famous American wine critic, noted this as the Petrus of the Côte de France. Can you just tell us a bit more about it? Well, you've told it's 100% Merlot. Um, why is it special? Because it is a really special wine. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, f first, um, yeah, it is a property that my parents purchased in '94, and uh, in terms of my personal relationship with Marceau, um, well, of course, it, I, as a student, I spent summers uh, working in the vines, which is good because you learn how to lean um in front of 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 the vine and um in 2012 my wife who's a winemaker began um looking after uh, after marceau and and it was a planned transition between my father running the estate and uh, uh and my wife and and that transition was completed at the end of 2017 so now it is still the same estate but the it used to be my parents, and, and now it is my, my wife and I. Um, she's essentially the one running the place. And though, as you would imagine, I have some uh, implications in, 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 <laughs> in, in selling it. And, and it is, uh, uh, well, a constant conversation between the two of us. Why is it special? Um, for a few reasons. Um, of course, the... Terroir, uh, and everyone will tell you we have a great terroir, but how do I know that the terroir is special? 
it's because we all we both know that some wines can be really good, mm-hmm. extremely well made, hugely pleasurable. When you take that, you taste the same bottle of wine twenty years down the road, and it has not developed a special identity. And and now we have the perspective that shows that the wines at Marceau develop a special identity over time. It's pure clay, pure deep clay. Uh, but I think what makes it really special to us is its situation, its remote. You get to Marceau like you get to the end of the road. If you hear a tractor, it's going to be ours. Otherwise, you'll hear the wind in the trees and the birds. And, 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 and this is the reality of it. Uh, we don't have neighbors with vineyards. Around us is meadows and, and woods. Um, so it, it, is, it is a very remote and protected ecosystem. So it used to be referred to as the Petrus of the Côte de France by Parker, but I think we've become even more ambitious and we don't refer, <laughs> we, we don't refer to anyone. Now we, we want to do our own thing. We, we, I like that. We're not, we're not comparing ourselves or challenging anyone. Yeah. We try to go as far as we can. I once read somewhere that you, that you said that your favourite wine you'd ever had was a 1982 uh, uh, Canon Segur from Saint Estef. Obviously, I mean there must be other contenders. I mean you drink fine wine all the time. Why that wine? Was it still the memory? Was it the people you drank it with? Was it the occasion? What was the thing about that wine? Well, <clears throat> of course, I've had. I mean, I'm hugely privileged, and I've had many. I mean glorious bottles uh so far in my career and it's over um but so in the end what you you remember special moments and and that canon segur 82 was in 2005 i could mention two bottles that i've had very special one canon segur 82 summer 2005 and it's the bottle of wine we had after i asked my wife if she would marry me ah that's a lovely story yeah yeah Yeah. and, and and the wine was if the one had not been good, I would not remember it. But but it was. And the other one is a bottle of Cheval Blanc 1990 that my father opened uh, the day my son was born. And and yeah. And so, in that sense, fine wines can be time capsules and and yeah. and, and really help um, well cement some memories. And 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 it clearly was the case in those two instances. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's 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 the memory as much as the bottle, isn't it? Yes. But the bottle has to be up to the memory. No, exactly. I mean, if you were drinking a bottle of Piet d'Or, you wouldn't remember the wine. You wouldn't have been, but obviously. I mean, you, you mentioned this. I mean, I know that you're a very keen wine drinker and collector. Um, and, you know, I've enjoyed lots of good bottles with you over the years. And you're very open-minded, which I like about you, one of the many things I like about you. Um, which regions and wine-producing countries other than Bordeaux do you really like and are you interested in? I cannot mention regions that I am not interested in. I, I, I'm, I, I'm really in, interested in, in, in good wines from uh, regardless of where they come from. Uh, so at the end, it really comes down to what I am exposed to. And I'm more exposed, of course, to French wines than I am to some other countries. And, and, and then I'm more exposed to wines of Europe and, and then from the places that where we, we sell wine. But it, I would have a hard time singling out, singling out a few um, regions. I love wines from I mean, Bordeaux, no need to say, uh, I love the reds from Burgundy. I, I love Brunellos, and, uh, which I know a bit more than Barolos, but, 
but but I, I I love the wines of Napa, uh, a good number of them, and and all the history that goes behind this region. Uh, I discover many more wines from Argentina, and and that discovery is uh, is hugely exciting. So I cannot limit my tastes or uh, t- or just my drinking to uh, a few number of regions. There's always more to discover. I'm the same. I think life would be very boring if you always drank wine from the same wine region. I mean, even if it were Bordeaux or Burgundy, I think it, I'd get bored of that. Yeah, it's to me, it's just like listening to It's just like saying, I love classical music. I only listen to Bach. And hmm. maybe Bach is the ultimate. Hmm. But then you love back. You don't love classical music, and and I love mm-hmm. wine. So so it, that means trying wines from yeah, be, being open and and enjoying the thrill of discovering. Yeah, just tell us who have been the major influences on you. I mean, your father, obviously, who's a remarkable guy, and your mum, likewise. Um, any winemakers? I mean, maybe Michel Roland. I know you have a good relationship with him. Anybody who's who's helped you in your career? Yeah, it's. It's it's really hard to say. There's, I think you remember more uh, the people who have an influence on you when you're uh, younger, uh, because those influences can be more defining. And I remember someone who had my job at CVPG uh, 25 years ago, um, who whom I worked with on an internship, and and I can say his name is Christophe Boulsels. My fascination for this profession owes a lot to him for seeing him doing the job. Um, and and I could mention uh, also uh, Jean-Hubert Delon from Neoville Lascaz, who, when I started, um, contributed greatly to uh, developing my understanding of the taste of great wines. Uh, but, and as you progress through your career, it, you... you I don't think I can say that person has has had a huge influence, but I am influenced by everyone I meet. Uh, you always meet people who are better at, than you at in different things. Something, yeah. uh, yes, uh, constantly, and and every time that happens, and it does happen very often, that has a strong influence on me. My team has a strong influence on me, and sometimes you're influenced by people whom you've never met, but they're great leaders or great uh, businessmen, and 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 I can clearly think of, yep. Yeah, uh, uh, in, even people like Yvon Chouinard from Patagonia, I read his book 15 years ago, and, and that had an influence on how I understand uh, what a business is meant to achieve. Hmm. Final question, because um, I, I know, looking at your Instagram feed, that you're a very good photographer and you like being in the mountains. Is that the main way you get away from wine, to go walking in the mountains and take some pictures? Well, if I have the choice... That will be my first choice. I just, I just have an absolute fascination for the mountains. Hmm. And which mountains did you go to? The Alps. Uh, oh, okay. the, I know the Pyrenees and I love the Pyrenees, but the, I, I love the Alps. Uh, and and I, I mean, they're they're the most accessible. But in the Alps, there's the history of mountain climbing as well. Uh, it, there's this notion that this is the main place where it started because it's the central mountain range in Europe. So, and yeah, mountain is, is, is really special. But I see a mountain the, and I'm the, happy. 
<laughs> I like that. That's fantastic. Matthew, thank you very much. It's been fantastic to hear your vision of the world of fine wine. And, you know, keep doing what you're doing because it's just so wonderful talking to you and listening to your, your amazing passion for wine. And I hope to see you soon. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. See you very soon indeed. What an articulate, thoughtful and intelligent human being. The fine wine trade needs more people like Mathieu. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Charles Back from Fairview and Spice Route in South Africa. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.